We're continuing in our series in miracles. Who decided we'd do a series in miracles? Controversial. I think it might have been me. My own fault. We began in Genesis to show that life itself is a miracle. And we looked at uh, then the resurrection of Jesus, the miracle of all miracles. And after that, uh, we looked at what it meant for us to be born again. This idea that we were once dead in our sins, but now alive in Christ, and how that actually is a miracle. And so if you uh, are someone here who professes faith, you are a miracle. God has done a miracle in your life. And then last week we began looking at the miracles of Jesus. And that's what we're going to continue doing today. We saw that the miracles of Jesus have multi-layers of meaning, but ultimately they are about signs, signs of the kingdom of God advancing upon the earth. They demonstrate what things look like when Jesus is in charge. And they demonstrate what things will look like when Jesus comes again and we see his authority in its fullness. And we see this glorious new creation where all the brokenness that we see now will be gone and we will be everything that we were called to be in his presence forever and ever and ever. So the miracles are a glorious thing. They help us to understand that. They help us to look beyond the miracle to something much greater. And some are hearing about the miracles of Jesus and they're, they're, they're thinking this. Wow, miracles were great then, but I'm glad that I don't have to do that now, because that's a bit freaky. And then there are others who are thinking, no, no, these are the miracles of Jesus, and we need to replicate them exactly how they are now. So hurry up, Ian, and get to the point where you tell us how to do that. And uh, we're going to address this a lot more in the last talk in our series, Miracles for Today. But I wanted to give you a little prelude, just a little help in kind of addressing some of the issues that we might have in either having preconceived ideas about replicating the miracles of Jesus or having preconceived ideas about not replicating the miracles of Jesus. So some would like to think that we just lack the faith and that his kingdom should be here in full today. But there's lots of problems with that theory. And we're going to get, like I said, we're going to get to that, okay? But let me just name a few. It can become a form of works righteousness, where the idea is that you do enough miracles to prove your spirituality, and if you don't do that, you can't be in a certain class of Christianity. There's two classes of Christianity. The problem is that's nonsense, according to the rest of Scripture. Then you've got the very real problem, of people still get sick and die who have lots of faith. So what's going on there? Then the Bible itself says that we should expect various trials and sufferings. And actually even suggest that God will use them for his glory and our good. And then I think this is a really big one for us culturally. When we see this in the Bible, we see that it is corporate. We see that this is done in the church of many gifts, not that we should be doing it individualistically. Not that this is about 
us as one person sitting here today consuming and thinking, right, okay, what can I learn about miracles today that means that I can go and replicate them right now, me, 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 rather than thinking about the wider church. How does the church demonstrate the signs of the kingdom of God which is still advancing upon the earth? And it is as the gospel is proclaimed that we see these signs and wonders. It isn't about the miracles themselves. And so we need to be really clear about that as a church. So we are a church who love the Bible and we believe that the Bible says we should pursue all the gifts, including the gifts that are miraculous. And when we do that, we want to do that in a very grounded biblical way. We don't want to do that in a way that ends up just being about emotionalism or ends up being about the miracles themselves rather than Jesus and his kingdom. So John 14, 12 is probably the verse that people will use most when they have this view that it's just about our faith. They say, this is where Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Now, first reading, I understand. I was there once myself. It could seem like we should be healing with the same intensity as Jesus did. We should be feeding the 5,000. We should be walking on water and calming storms. But there, that, here's the thing. This is about much more than miracles. He says, Jesus says this will happen because he's going to the Father. Okay, so that's our first clue. He says this will happen because he gives us a because, a reason. He is going to the Father. This is about something that will happen once Jesus has proclaimed it is finished and then rises again three days later and then uh, ascends into heaven after commissioning the disciples to for what's going to come when the church is born. Then he pours out the spirit, the church is born, and then this new era comes around at Pentecost and this era that we're in now. And it's not just about signs and wonders, it's about new life. And how do we know that? How do we know it's about new life? Because at the beginning of that verse, and the context of John, we know that when belief is mentioned, believe in my name, he's talking about something more than just faith for a miracle. He's talking about faith in Jesus for eternal life. So Jesus introduces it with, whoever believes in me and in John, that means saving faith. So this glorious phase is totally undersold if it becomes purely about miracles. And actually, as we look back through history, we can now say this has happened because this is about people of many nations being saved in the church as the church grows in the name of Jesus. So it's about Jesus transforming lives, but his kingdom advancing and his kingdom advancing by the transforming of hearts. And alongside that, come signs and wonders. So that's our focus. That's the way we look at this thing. The greater works are the the lasting works. People born again. People receiving a new beginning. If you're a Christian today, you are part of that greater work. Because after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended on high and poured out his spirit, something was complete that wasn't complete before Jesus went to the cross. And so now we live in this era that is a greater era where the works are greater because Jesus is transforming hearts around the world across generations and giving them eternal life. 
But this statement, especially the first part of it, alongside the commissioning of the apostles to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and both the instructions given to and the signs and wonders recorded in Acts and the rest of the epistles, then we actually we know that we're still supposed to pursue signs and wonders. And so although the focus is this spreading flame, the spreading gospel, this kingdom advancing, we do look to grow in the gifts as a church. And so we're going to pursue that. But we're going to do that in a way that is biblically ordered, not just in the way that we feel or the way that we want to do it. So when we go out on the 16th of June, in the afternoon, after church, we're going to have some lunch together in Glasgow Green if the weather's good. And then we're going to do a little bit of instruction. And then we're going to go out onto the streets in little groups. And in those groups, we are going to be praying for Glasgow. And we're going to be praying that God would transform hearts and bring people to faith. And we're going to be looking for excuses to have conversations with people. And we'll come up with some ways of doing that without it being kind of freaky and weird. And um, we'll, then we'll look at that point to pray for people. Ask them, do you want prayer? And then if they do, and God decides to do some sort of sign and wonder alongside what we are talking to them about, ultimately Jesus, then praise God. If somebody gets healed, we don't just go, oh, wow, you got healed. Isn't that so cool? No, we go, you got healed because Jesus is the healer. And actually Jesus is the healer, not just of your arm or whatever was just healed, but of your whole life. That he is the ultimate healer. That you are sick, that you are stuck in your sin and you're sick and you need a doctor and Jesus is the ultimate doctor and he's come to heal you he's shown you but through this sign that that's what he's come to do hallelujah do you want to know him today so that is why we do it it's not just about miracles more to be revealed in a few weeks time okay let's look at two more of Jesus miracles Uh, we're going to go to Matthew 8 uh, verses 5 through 13 And we're going to look at the healing of a centurion servant. And then after that, we're going to look at Jesus cursing a fig tree in Matthew 21. Okay, quite a controversial one that people often think, what is that about? So um, we will look at that and um, ask God to come and speak to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have come to do the greater miracle. And uh, that we in this room are evidence of that. We pray for that to multiply, that life would multiply across this city. God, would you do something today that would equip us for that? That would be about much more than miracles, uh, that would be uh, about this ultimate miracle of uh, Jesus, you being resurrected from the dead, being our great hope, and uh, us putting our faith in you and having our hearts turned from stone to flesh. Lord, would you come and teach us, we pray, as we look at these miracles now. Uh, Help us to see what you were doing in that moment and uh, why it was written in the way it was written. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Matthew 8, verse 5 says this. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, Shall I come to heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man 
under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness there where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Jesus goes to Capernaum. It's a working class fishing town. It's full of tough but patriotic Jews, people looking for liberation from Roman tyranny and hoping that Israel will be set free. But in Galilee, it wasn't actually Roman soldiers who were there uh, governing and bringing the force of government to the area through these soldiers. It was actually hired soldiers, not from Rome, but uh, under the command of Herod and Antipas, mostly hired soldiers, probably from Lebanon and Syria. And so when this centurion, one of the despised occupiers, um, comes to Jesus, people around him are thinking, what is this guy doing? We... We hope that we hope that this guy would go back with all these all these mates, all these cronies back to wherever they came from. And so when he asked this, they'd be thinking, "Are we hearing this? Is is a centurion asking a Jewish teacher for help? What do they have to do with us? Don't they know any self-respecting rabbi will tell them beat it." I can imagine even that they might be laughing at this guy. What are you doing here? This isn't for you. So there's this enormous pressure on Jesus. Surely he would send him away. But with Jesus, he often shocks us, doesn't he? Most translations don't record this as a question. The NIV does, which is the one I read from. But I don't, th- I don't think it's supposed to be a question. He says, so it says, shall I come and heal him in the NIV? But most versions say something like this, I will come and heal him in verse 7. That would have been a dramatic statement to the people around. And the centurion's response is beautiful. I love the, the response of the centurion. He says, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is amazed at this man's faith. What boldness, what courage to approach Jesus. And what a response to Jesus' willingness to come and heal. He recognises both how unworthy he is, and yet, at the same time, is bold enough to come and ask Jesus, knowing that Jesus may have compassion on him. It's as if he kind of he has a, a sense that, that Jesus hasn't just come to bless the Israelites, but he has maybe come to bless us as well, to bless the nations. So in doing, doing that, he bows to the authority of King Jesus, and he says, I think, 
Jesus, you might be over all things, not just a, a saviour to Israel. This Jewish rabbi isn't about the liberation of Israel from the, the Romans and the, the hired men, but about liberation of the world from bondage to sin, suffering, death. Notice that biblical faith is not wrapped up in self-belief. It's not, I must believe in myself and in God in order to be effective. It's not a both and thing. He's not listening to, to the world at the same time as listening to God. He's purely putting his faith in Jesus here. So it's actually to come humbly with a singularity of belief in God alone and to lay down our pride for we really bring nothing to the table. And we lay down our self-belief. See, I can't do it, but God, you can. A ruling soldier with the power of the sword comes to Jesus, to this righteous man, and like the hierarchy in his army, he recognises there's a hierarchy in creation. And Jesus is at the top. He is the supreme commander. He is the one who can heal my servant. Because he is the supreme commander over all things. He essentially says to Jesus, my commander. I wonder, do you see Jesus like that? Do you humble yourself before him and say, Lord, instruct me in your ways. I will do anything that you ask me to do. I lay down my pride of believing my own simple and foolish ways. And I say, God, you know all things. You are the commander over all creation. I bow the knee and say, you have every right in my life. That's what it is to become a Christian, you know. Sometimes we don't present it that way, but that is the truth. To become a Christian is to lay down your life and say, Jesus, I trust you with my whole life. Guys, don't look to self-help to boost your confidence. Don't look to self-righteous religion to earn your way to heaven. Don't look to your status in the eyes of the world to give you the satisfaction that you're looking for in life. Look to Jesus and lay yourself at his feet and rely on him for redemption and power. There you will find the real you, the, the genuinely liberated you, the one who is more free than ever. Now verse 10 is the real kicker. Jesus not, is not only amazed at the Gentiles' faith, but he compares his faith to the Jews, to God's people who are looking on. He says, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whenever you say, see Jesus say, truly I say to you, truly I tell you, read carefully. Listen carefully. 
He's giving an important verdict. So what he does here is he, he stops addressing this man himself on his own and he turns to the watching crowd. Truly I say to you, listen up. In all of Israel, God's chosen nation, the people of Abraham, those who think that by their birthright and the works of the law that they reserve the right to God's promise to them. And Jesus warns them, this man, this Gentile, has real faith. Faith that is entirely dependent on Jesus, the servant king, the Christ. Depending on your birthright will not be enough. This man will feast with your fathers. Can you imagine how insulting that would be to a Jew? This man will feast with your fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But you, you'll be thrown into darkness. Wow. For the humble in the crowd, for those who know who this is or have an inkling that this might be Jesus, or sorry, this Jesus might be the Christ, the Messiah, they would remember God's promise to the old man of faith, Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will, be, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And then, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The kingdom of God will be made up of many nations, many Tribes and tongues together as one people under God. Israelites and Palestines, Syrians and Kurds, Arabs and Iraqis. That's why when the church was born at Pentecost, many nations were represented. And that's why John sees this in the Revelation, in Revelation and the vision that God gave him. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I feel like Lindsay and I had a little privilege of kind of getting a little glimpse of what this might look like when we went to a conference in Greece a few years ago. It's called the European Leaders Conference. I'm not entirely sure about it. It's called the European Leaders Conference because there are people from Greenland and is that part of Europe? Don't think so. Um, and parts of Asia. And um, it, it just, there was someone from China. But anyway, many nations in one room. And so we're worshipping together. And people are worshipping in different languages and some people are trying to worship in English or whatever language we're trying to worship in at that moment. It's being led from the front. And it's just something beautiful about the way that they're doing that. And then uh, during the sermons, there's this, there's this kind of glorious murmuring that's going on while the sermon was taking place, while somebody was giving a talk from the Bible. And it was translation taking place across the room. People translating what's being said across the room. And then people would pray for one another in all their different languages, with all their different cultural norms that they would bring to prayer. And we would pray together. People would lay hands and pray for one another. And there was just something beautiful about it. And they even had people from different nations who should really hate one another. Bosnians and Serbs praying for one another. 
because they're one in Christ. Because Jesus has united them. Jesus amazes the crowd at Capernaum when he does this because he's welcoming this Gentile, this non-Jew into the kingdom of God and showing up false religion, the false religion of Israel. And he's giving them a big sign, a sign that he is the one to fulfill God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations. And now we are the church and we've been commissioned. Jesus gave us this commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you to do. We are the church and we too are on mission. So if you are a Christian, you're on mission. It's a part of your identity. As soon as you give your life to Jesus, you became a missionary. When we were in Galatians, we see this fleshed out, don't we? Not just in nationalistic or racial terms, but in differences in society as well. Paul says that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Those were the separations in society at that time which were most obvious. So that's the ones that he speaks into. But what would he speak into today in Glasgow? Where are the separations in our society? Because God has commissioned us to go to all those people. So that means we don't just go to the people that we want to go to. We don't just hang out with people that are similar to us. It means that at Grace Communities we eat together like we did this week. And we get round the table with people who we probably wouldn't normally hang out with. And we declare by eating together we are one in Christ. And then we gather on Sundays and we do the same. And when we have communion together, we do the same. We break bread together and we drink wine together and we say, we get round the table of Jesus together in a way that the world has no concept for. Even in this day of pushing equalities to the, to the maximum extreme, the world has real no, really no idea of what it means to be one in Christ. There's something so much more powerful about that. It's not just tolerance, it's unity. We're joined It's also why we partner with other churches around the world, with advanced churches being planted and strengthened in every corner of the UK, in Asia, in Africa, in North America. There are plans for Europe. We want to see the nations blessed. So the nations have come to us in Glasgow, and there are all sorts of different people groups, and we want to unite them here in this church, and then eventually see churches planted around the city that, that will help us to do that. But we also want to partner with other churches around the world who are speaking totally different languages and going into totally different contexts and cultures, which means we can't just have one model of church in terms of uh, our culture, but actually we are united in the gospel, and then we work out how to take that glorious gospel and proclaim it well in that context, and then we celebrate what they do, and we cheer them on from a distance, and we pray for them, and they pray for us. You have no idea how many people are praying for us. It's a glorious thing, and it's carrying us, because it's the kingdom of God at work. It's the kingdom of God doing this thing. Final chapter of the Bible finishes like this. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are, or the tree, are for the healing of 
the nations. One day we'll be perfectly united as God's one people. I can't wait. But for now, let's point people towards it. And this miracle helps us to see that we're to do that. Okay, turn with me to Matthew 21, 18 through 22. And you'll be glad to know we're not going to take quite so much time on this one. Matthew 21:18-22 Early in the morning as Jesus was on his way back to the city he was hungry seeing a fig tree by the road he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves then he said to it may you never bear fruit again immediately the tree withered when the disciples saw this they were amazed how did the fig tree wither so quickly they asked jesus replied truly i tell you if you have faith and do not doubt not only can you do what was done to the fig tree but also you can go to this mountain go throw yourself into the sea or you can go and say to the mountain go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done if you believe you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer now this has been a really tricky miracle for a lot of people and they've looked at this and they just think why on earth would Jesus curse a fig tree I thought Jesus was good and brought life why would he curse and kill something that makes no sense to me well the first thing we need to understand is that this is a prophetic action it's telling us something much more than what he's actually doing so Israel is supposed to be a tree like a vine planted by God in order to bear good fruit And notice that Jesus goes up to this fig tree and he found nothing on the tree except leaves. Now that's an interesting observation because I'm no expert, but I'm told that when it comes to fig trees, fig trees are supposed to be covered in leaves at the same time as bearing fruit. So if there's leaves, there's fruit. Okay, so you go up to a fig tree and you see leaves from a distance. You can go, ah, great, that will have figs on it so I'm going to go and I'm going to pick a fig and eat I can taste and see I can see that it's good and then I can go to it and I can taste that it's good but Jesus found only leaves so Israel planted by God was like this fig tree you see in Israel and its temple Jesus should be going into the temple and going to uh, walking around Israel and seeing the blessing that we see promised in the Old Testament to Israel by their obedience and by their faith but that's not what he sees he goes into the temple right before this moment where Israel was supposed to demonstrate their devotion to God and their fear of God but instead they demonstrate its spiritual barren state He goes into the temple and instead of in the temple seeing fruit, seeing people uh, falling down before the presence of God and being in reverence of who God is, he goes in and he sees them turning it into a den of robbers, he says. Using it for trade, abusing the space, not seeing it as the temple of God where God's presence dwells. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer. The temple was designed with great detail, actually, with uh, imagery of gardens 
throughout it. And the reason for that is because biblically we can look back to Eden as the first ever temple where God dwelt with his people. And so then throughout the Old Testament you see this uh, description of what's in the temple as garden imagery. And then again and again and again we also see garden imagery for who we should be as the people of God who are now the temples of God because Jesus died and was resurrected. The temple was destroyed and was resurrected, was rebuilt in three days. And when he did that, it was the first sign that we too would become temples of the Holy Spirit. And so now we should be filled with fruit. So not only should Israel have been more fruitful, and Jesus is saying, hey, this isn't what you were called to. Where is the blessing? There's also a sign pointing forward here of what it should be to be someone who puts their faith in him, in Jesus. In Matthew 3, 7, John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, people uh, went out to, uh, this is where uh, John the Baptist is baptizing people, and this is what it says. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. See that phrase, produce fruit in keeping with repentance? And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The religious elites in Jerusalem looked the part. They had leaves on the tree, but they weren't producing fruit. It was useless and dead works that they were showing off. So from a distance it looked great. But when you got to the heart of it, when you got into their hearts, you saw that it was hypocrisy. And so Jesus, by cursing this victory, is saying, don't be hypocrites. It leads to death. It doesn't lead to life. Be humble and turn to God and rely on his power, his spirit. Rely on Jesus. Rely on faith on him. And then you will produce fruit. It's the natural overflow. When I was about 21 or 22, I started listening to a preacher in the States and I loved this guy. Loved what he was preaching, loved what he was doing. Heard about the church, just really excited about it. So um, I went out, and I went three times. Loved it. Went in, the building was incredible, it was so cool, and they had this amazing worship band, and it was just different and edgy. And he just preached the word with such boldness. I'm just going, yes, this is amazing, I love this place. This is so cool, even the cookies were outstanding. But in time, it turned out that behind closed doors, the lead pastor of that church, the guy who I thought, wow, he's amazing, was being manipulative, power hungry, and he was a bully. And in the end, that church folded in dramatic fashion. It was a big lesson to me. Do not chase church growth. Don't chase the, the bright lights. Chase the kingdom of God. Pursue Jesus with all your heart and let him do whatever he wants to do. 
So at Glasgow Grace, we'll do all we most possibly can to be authentic, to be humble, and to not say and do one thing and then go home and live lives that are totally different. Behind closed doors, during meetings, we want to be as gracious and welcoming and loving as we are in a public setting. We want to be people who love our families well, who prioritise our families. We want to be people who prioritise our relationships at work and love people well, and not just pretend on a Sunday that everything is fine. Things could look really good, but it could just be leaves and no real fruit. It's also why we shouldn't make celebrities out of Christian preachers, worship leaders, or any other gift. Don't let the leaves impress you alone. Look for fruit and look for character. Because we know that when you produce fruit, we'll see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. But hey, that's the easy thing to say about this passage. It's easy to talk about institutions. It's easy to talk about church. We don't want to be like that. We want to be like this. But what about your own life? What do you display at church that in public you, and in public that you don't display at home? What impression are you giving people about your character, about your love for God and others, while your bank account says something else? Or while you watch porn on your phone? And don't repent. You don't care. Just keep doing it. Do you give the impression that you're holy? Pray impressive prayers at prayer meetings, at grace communities and Sunday mornings. Bring contributions. And then during the week, you hardly pray. You hardly open your Bible. Miracles aren't the primary truths you need to look for. Good moral behavior on the outside, that's not what you have to look for either. But genuine fruit, a changed heart, someone who's walking with Jesus... Instead of a heart of stone, a heart of flesh, soft to the things of God. Someone who is pained to betray God in sin. We'll still sin from time to time. But when we do, are we pained by it? Do we repent? Someone who is on a journey of increasing fruits of the Spirit. That's what we want to be. Jesus came to bring salvation to the world as a free gift and we receive it as a free gift. But here's something that we need to make sure that we don't miscommunicate because we don't want you to think that good works are the enemy of grace. In fact, they're the best of friends. What do I mean by that? I mean that when there is genuine transformation in our hearts and when we're genuinely receiving from God humbly and saying, God, I need you in every way. When we do that, we lay our lives down. We will see fruit. And we will see evidence of our salvation. It will come. Now that, I don't want this to be a moment where you start doubting your faith. If that's you right now, I'd love to chat to you after and help you see that maybe that's not something you should be doing today. But we should be people who are responding to the grace of God. And when we respond, we respond with a love like he has loved us. We start to become more like him. The truth is, without Jesus, none of us could be fruitful. 
If we are too proud to see that, like Israel in Jesus' day, we will become hypocrites. Religious types who go about judging others, looking down on people, considering ourselves as sorted when we're not without Jesus. We need Jesus in every way. Genuine belief that gives us a relationship with God will bear fruit. As Christians, our whole attitude should be one that recognises that without Jesus, I was fruitless. But he went to the cross, he died in my place, he took on my sin and my shame, and he died so that I didn't have to carry that anymore. And he took the punishment I deserved, and then three days later he rose from the dead and he gave me new life. Now he's poured out the Spirit who is my helper so that I can walk with him in this life. These miracles, these glorious signs of what Jesus came to do, they're, of course, much more than just the miracles. They're about Jesus coming to establish a kingdom of many nations, of many people groups uniting us in him. And they're about us becoming humble people, not proud people, but people who really put our trust in Jesus and start to bear fruit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came as a humble servant and gave us this most glorious model of what it means to love people. And thank you, Lord, that ultimately in doing that, you didn't just bring signs and wonders, you didn't just bring great teaching, you came to save us. And now we can stand as righteous in your sight. And so when we stand to worship in a moment, we can run into your presence. Some of us may be feeling guilty. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to simply repent and remember, oh, Lord, you have done it. It's not about my works and my efforts, but you have done it. And so this ongoing process of receiving more and more of your grace as we are uh, becoming more like you, Jesus, I pray that that would only encourage us. It would only encourage us to bear fruit. That would only encourage us to walk with you in our lives. God, help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.